in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Grant us peace, O Lord, in our days, for there is no other who will fight for us, save but you, our God. The following is a reading from Father Alban Butler's Lives of the Saints. June 28th, St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, Martyr. This saint is himself our voucher that he was born near the times of Domitiari, consequently not in the close as Dupin conjectures, but in the beginning of Adrian's reign about the year 120. He was a Grecan, probably a native of Lesser Asia. His parents, who were Christians, placed him under the care of the great St. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. It was in, in so holy a school that he learned that sacred science which rendered him afterwards a great ornament of the church in the days of her splendor and the terror of her enemies. St. Polycarp cultivated his rising genius, informed his mind to piety by precepts and example, and the zealous scholar was careful to repeat all the advantages which were offered to him by the happiness of such a master. Such was his veneration for his sanctity that he observed every action and whatever he saw in that holy man, the better to copy his example and learn his spirit. He listened to his instructions with an insatiable ardor, and so deeply did he engrave them in his heart that the impressions remained most lively even to his old age, as he declares in his letter to Florinus, Florinus quoted by Eusebius. St. Jerome informs us that St. Irenaeus was also a scholar of Papias, another disciple of the Apostles. In order to confute the heresies of that age, which in the three first centuries were generally a confused medley drawn from the most extravagant systems of the heathens and their philosophers, joined with Christianity, this father studied diligently the mythology of the pagans and made himself acquainted with the most absurd conceits of their philosophers, by which means he was qualified to trace up every error to its sources and set it in its full light. On this account he is styled by Tertullian, the most diligent searcher of all doctrines. St. Jerome often appeals to his authority. Eusebius commends his exactness. St. Epiphanius calls him a most learned and eloquent man, endowed with all the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Theodoret styles him the light of the western Gauls. The great commerce between Marseille and the ports of Lesser Asia, especially Smyrna, made the intercourse between those places very open. The faith of Christ was propagated in that part of Gaul in the times of the Apostles, and from thence stood, soon reached Vienne and Lyon, the, this latter town being then, by the advantage of the Rhone, no less famous a mart than it is at this day. While the desire of wealth encouraged many to hazard the persons amidst the dangers of the seas and robbers in the way of trade, a zeal for the divine honor and the salvation of souls was a more noble and more powerful motive with others, to face every danger and surmount every difficulty for so glorious an achievement. Among the Greeks and Orientals, whom he first crowned with martyrdom, with others at Lyon and Vienne, several doubtless had traveled into those parts with a view only to, to earn thither the light of the gospel. St. Gregory of Tours informs us that St. Polycarp himself sent St. Irenaeus into Gaul, perhaps in company with some priest. He was himself ordained priest of the Church of Lyon at by St. Pothinus, and in 177 he was sent deputy in the name of the Church to Pope Eleutherius to entreat him not to cut off from the communion 
of the Church of the Orientals on account of their difference about the celebration of Easter, as Eusebius and St. Jerome take notice. The multitude and zeal of the faithful at Lyon stirred up the rage of the heathens and gave occasion to a tumultuary and most bloody persecution, of which an account has been given June 2nd. I assume he's referring to an earlier excerpt from the Lives of the Saints on June 2nd. St. Irenaeus gave great proofs of his zeal in those times of trial, but survived the storm during the first part of which he had been absent in his journey to Rome. St. Pathinus, having glorified God by his happy death in the year 177, our saint upon his return was chosen the second bishop of Lyon in the heat of the persecution. By his preaching, he in a short time converted almost the whole country to the faith, as St. Gregory of Tours testifies. Eusebius tells us that he governed the churches of Gaul, but the faith was not generally planted in the more remote provinces from Marseille and Lyon before the arrival of St. Dionysius and his companions in the following century. Commodus, succeeding his father Marcus Aurelius in the empire in 180, though an effeminate debauched prince, restored peace to the church but it was disturbed by an execrable spawn of heresies, particularly of the Gnostics and Valentinians. St. Irenaeus wrote chiefly against these last, his five books against heresies. The original Greek text of this work was most elegant, as St. Jerome testifies, but except for some few Greek passages which have been preserved, only a Latin translation is extant, in which the styles embarrassed, diffusive, and unpolished. It seems to have been made in the lifetime of St. Irenaeus and to be the same that was made use of by Tertullian and Dom, as Damosé shows. This Valentinius was a good scholar and preached with applause first in Egypt and afterwards at Rome. We learn from Tertullian that he fell by pride and jealousy because another was preferred before him in an election to a bishopric in Egypt. He first broached his heresy in Cyprus but afterwards propagated it in Italy and Gaul. St. Irenaeus in his first book gives us in detail the ridiculous dreams of Valentinius concerning the progeny of the thirty Aeones, an imaginary kind of inferior deities which this heretic pretended to be produced by the eternal, invisible, and incomprehensible god called Bathos, or Depth, and his wife Enoia, or Thought, otherwise called Siege or Silence. These chimeras he forged from Hesiod's book of the generation of the heathen gods and some notions of Plato, and some truths he borrowed from the Gospel of St. John. St. Irenaeus refutes him by the Holy Scriptures, by the Creed, of which he mentions almost all the articles, and by the unanimity of all the churches in the same faith, to which he opposes the disagreement of the heretics among themselves. For there was not a disciple of Valentinus who did not correct or change his master's doctrine. He mentions several of their variations and describes at length the superstitions and impostures of the heresiarch Mark, who, in consecrating chalices filled with water and wine according to the Christian rite, made the chalices appear filled with a certain red liquor, which he called blood, and who allowed women to consecrate the holy mysteries. The saint gives also a history of the first other heretics. In his second book, he shows that God created the universe and refutes the system of Aeones. He testifies that Christians wrought miracles in the name of the Son of God, 
Some, says he, cast out devils truly and most powerfully, so that they who have been delivered most frequently have turned believers. Others have the foreknowledge of future events, visions, and prophetic sayings. Others cure the sick of any disease by the imposition of hands. Some persons that were dead have been raised again and have continued among us many years. Nor can we sum up the miraculous works which the Church by the gift of God performs every day over the whole world in the name of Christ Jesus. And in the preceding chapter, speaking of the disciples of Simon Magus, who pretended to miracles or magical delusions, he writes, They cannot give sight to the blind, nor hearings to the deaf, nor cast out all devils, but only such as they themselves have sent in. So far as they, so far are they from raising the dead as our Lord raised them, and as the apostles did by prayer, and as in the brotherhood oftentimes is done, when the whole church of the place hath begged it with much fasting and prayer. The spirit of the dead man hath returned, and the man hath been given back to the prayers of the saints, etc. Thus he assigns the gift of miracles as a mark of the true church. See this first testimony quoted by Eusebius, Histories 1, 5, chapter 7, who assures us himself that some remains of the miraculous powers continued in his time, the 4th century. The same author, speaking of the successors of the apostles at the end of the 1st and beginning of the 2nd age, says, They went about with God's cooperating grace, for even then the divine spirit performed very little, very, very many miracles by them. In the middle of the 2nd century, St. Justin Martyr writes, There are prophetic gifts among us even till now. And among these gifts, he reckons up miraculous powers as healing the sick, casting out devils, etc. The testimonies of St. Theophilus and all other writers of those times are no less full and express. St. Irenaeus in his third book complains that when the heretics are pressed by scripture, they elude it by pretending to fly to, to tradition, but that when tradition is urged against them, they abandon it to appeal to the scriptures alone, whereas both scripture and tradition confute them. He observes that the apostles certainly delivered the truth and all the mysteries of our faith to their successors, the pastors. To these, therefore, we ought to have recourse to learn them, especially, quote, to the greatest church, the most ancient and known to all, founded by, at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, which retains the tradition which it received from them and which is derived through a succession of bishops down to us, showing which we confound all who any way out of self-conceit, love, or of applause, blindness, or false persuasions, embrace what ought not to be advanced for to this church of Rome, on account of its chiefer presidentship, it is necessary that every church, that is, the faithful everywhere, address themselves in which church the, the tradition from the apostles is everywhere preserved. To show this succession in the Roman church, he names its bishops, saying that Saints Peter and Paul chose Linus to govern it after them, who was succeeded by Anacletus, Clemens, Evaristus, Alexander, Sixtus, Telesophorus, Hyginus, Pius, Anacetus, Soter, Eleutherius, who is now the twelfth bishop of Rome, says he, St. Irenaeus, adds in chapter 4. What should we have done if the apostles had left us no writings? We should certainly have followed the, this channel of tradition. As many barbarous nations possess the faith without the use of writing, who would stop their ears were they to hear the blasphemies of the heretics, who on the contrary have nothing but the novelty of their doctrine to show? For the Valentinians were not before Valentini Valentinus, nor the Marcionites before Marcion. All these arose much too late. In his fourth book he proves the unity of the Godhead and 
teaches that Christ, abolishing the ancient sacrifices, instituted the clean oblation of his his body and blood to be offered everywhere, as is foretold in Malachi. He gives the multitude of martyrs as a mark of the true church, saying the heretics cannot boast the like advantage, though some few of them have been mingled with our martyrs. In the fifth book, he proves our redemption by Christ and the resurrection of the dead, and again mentions the prophetic gifts and other miraculous powers as then subsisting in the church. He makes a recapitulation of the heresies he had confuted and says that their novelty alone suffices to confound them. He had some remarks on the coming of the Antichrist, and from a mistaken interpretation of a passage of the Apocalypse received from his master Papias, he infers the millenarian reign of Christ on earth with his elect before the last judgment in spiritual pleasures, not in carnal delights, which was the heresy of Serenthus and others. This opinion was soon afterward exploded by consulting the tradition of the Church according to the rule of St. Irenaeus, though the millenarian system has been revived by several Lutherans in Germany and even among English Protestants by Dr. Wells, Notes on the Apocalypse and some others. The works of St. Irenaeus were published by Erasmus, then by E. Fuardent, and in, 18, in 1702 by Grabe. Though this last editor often made too bold with the text, and his heterodox notes disfigure his work, in which he turns everything topsy-turvy to favor the idol of his new religion, especially his fond new idea of the great Eucharistic sacrifice of bread and wine. Dom Massey, a Benedictine Morist monk, gave us the most correct edition in 1710. Safif, a Lutheran in 1715, published from a manuscript in the Library of Turin four other fragments of this father, the second fragment is a remarkable proof of the Eucharistic sacrifice. When Florinus, who had been his fellow disciple under St. Polycarp and was afterwards a priest of the Church of Rome, blasphemously affirmed that God is the author of sin and was on that account deposed from the priesthood, St. Irenaeus wrote him a letter entitled, on the monarchy or unity of God, and that God is not the author of sin, which is now lost. Eusebius quotes from it a passage in which the Holy Father, in the most tender manner, reminds him what horror, with what horror their common master, St. Polycarp, had he been living, would have heard such impieties. Florinus was by this letter reclaimed from his error, but being a tur- of a turbulent, proud spirit, he soon after fell into the Valentinian heresy on which occasion St. Irenaeus wrote his Ogdoade, or Confutation of Valentinius's Eight Principal Aeones, by whom that heresiarch pretended that the world was created and governed. In the end of this book, the saint added the following adjuration preserved by Eusebius, quote, I conjure you who transcribe this book by our Lord Jesus Christ and by his glorious coming to, the, to judge the living and the dead, that you diligently compare your copy and correct it by the original. By this precaution we may judge from the extreme care of the fathers in this respect and how great their abhorrence was of the imprudent practice of some heretics in adulterating writings. One Blastus, a priest at Rome, formed a schism by keeping Easter on the fourteenth day of the first moon, and to this schism added heresy, teaching this to be a divine precept. He was deposed from the priesthood, and St. Irenaeus wrote against him his treatise on schism. 
The dispute about Easter being renewed, Pope Victor threatened to excommunicate the Asiatics, but was prevailed upon to tolerate for some time that practice of discipline by a letter of St. Irenaeus, who entreated and advised that, considering the circumstances, a difference of practice might be allowed in like manner, as the faithful did not all observe in the same manner the fast of superposition or of one or more days without taking any sustenance in Holy Week. But some kept it of one, others of two, others of more days. Thus the Pope's severity prevented these false teachers, who pretended the legal ceremonies to be of precept, from drawing any advantage from this practice of the Orientals, and the moderation of St. Irenaeus preserved some from a temptation of sinning by obstinacy and disobedience, till uniformity in that important point of discipline could be more easily established. The peace which the Church at that time enjoyed afforded our saint leisure to exert his zeal and employ his pen to great advantage. Commodus began his reign with extraordinary moderation, and though he afterwards sunk into debauchery and cruelty, yet he never persecuted the Christians. He was poisoned and strangled in 192, being 31 years old, of which he had reigned 12. Pertinax, an old man, was made emperor by compulsion, but reigned only 87 days, always trembling for his own safety. Being esteemed too frugal and rigorous, he was slain, and the praetorian guards, who had often made and unmade emperors at pleasure, who, whom the never-gainsaying senate confirmed on the occasion, debased to the last degree the dignity of the Roman Empire by exposing it to the sale, to sale by public auction. Didius Julianus and Sulpicianus, having several times outbid each other, when the latter had offered 5,000 drachms, Julianus at once rose to 6,250 drachms, which he promised to give every soldier, for which price he carried the, um, the empire. The Senate confirmed the election, but the purchaser, being embarrassed to find money to acquit himself of his engagement, was murdered 66 days after. Having dearly bought the honor of wearing the purple and of having his name placed among the emperors, Severus was next advanced to the throne by a part of the troops and acknowledged emperor by the Senate. Niger and Albinus were proclaimed by different armies, but Severus defeated the first by his generals in 194 and the latter himself near Lyon in Gaul in 197. The Christians had no share in these public broils. Tertullian, at that time, much extols the fidelity of the Christians to their princes, and says none of them were ever found in armies of rebels, and particularly that none of them were ever engaged in the party either of Niger or Albinus. It is evident from the whole series of the history of the Roman emperors that the people from the days of Augustus never looked upon the dignity as strictly hereditary. This point Dr. Hicks might have taken for granted and have spared himself the pains he was as was at to prove it in his Jovian. The Senate, from that, the time that it first was compelled to choose a master, could no more oppose an election of an emperor made by the armies than it could withstand the will of an emperor. So weak was it become that when some of the body complained that it was deprived of all cognizance of state affairs, Domitian paid it a mock compl compliment by vouchsafing to consult it what was the best way of dressing a huge turbot, which had been sent him for a present, which gave which grave deliberation would the flatteries of the senators to the tyrant upon that occasion, as portending victories and triumphs, is facetiously described by Juvenal. 
but nothing shows more notoriously the slavery of the Senate than the most abject flatteries which bestowed on Caligula, Nero, and Heliogabalus for their most outrageous acts of madness and inhuman tyranny, notwithstanding its dependence. The decree of the Supreme Court was at least a solemn enregistration and the definitive ceremony in the most important acts of state. The confirmation of the Senate in the name of the whole Roman people seems to have been regarded as the solemn act of the state by which an emperor was legally invested with the supreme dignity. On this account, the Christians everywhere acknowledged and faithfully obeyed Severus. He had also other obligations to them. Tertullian tells us that a Christian called Proculus cured himself of a certain distemper for which benefit the emperor was for some time favorable to the Christians and kept Proculus as long as he lived in his palace. This Proculus was the steward of Euhodus, who was a freed man of the emperor Severus, and by him appointed to educate his son, Caracalla. Tertullian mentions this cure as miraculous and joins it to the history of devils cast out. This cure is confirmed by, by pagan writers. Yet the clamors of the heathens at length moved this ungrateful emperor, who was naturally inclined to severity, to raise the fifth persecution against the church, for he was haughty, cruel, stubborn, and unrelenting. He published his bloody edicts against the Christians about the tenth year of his reign, of Christ 202. Having formerly been governor of Lyon, and eyewitness to the flourishing state of that church, he seems to have given particular instructions that the Christians there should be proceeded against with extraordinary severity, unless the persecution was owing to the fury of that particular magistrates and of the mob. For the general massacre of the Christians at Lyon seems to have been attended with a popular commotion of the whole country against them, while the pagans were celebrating the decennial games in honor of Severus. It seems to have been stirred up because the Christians refused to join the idolaters in their sacrifices. Once Tertullian says in his Apology, quote, Is it thus that your public rejoicings are consecrated by public infamy? Ado in his Chronicle says that St. Irenaeus suffered martyrdom with an exceeding great multitude. An ancient epitaph in Leonine verses inscribed on a glorious mosaic pavement in the great church of St. Irenaeus at Lyon says the martyrs who died with him amounted to the number of 19,000. St. Gregory of Tours writes that St. Irenaeus had in a very short time converted to the faith almost the whole city of Lyon and that with him were butchered almost all the Christians of that populous town, insomuch that the streets ran with streams of blood. Most place the martyrdom of these saints in 202, the beginning of the persecution, though some defer it to the year 208, when Severus passed through Lyon in his expedition into Britain. The precious remains of St. Irenaeus were buried by his priest Zachary between the bodies of the holy martyrs St. Epiphodius and Alexander. They were kept with honor in the subterraneous chapel in the church of St. John till, in 1562, they were scattered by the Calvinists and a great part thrown into the river. The head they kicked about in the streets, then cast it into a little brook, but it was found by a Catholic and restored to St. John's church. The Greeks honor his memory on the 23rd of August, the Latins on the 28th of June. The former say he was beheaded. It was not for want of strength or courage that the primitive Christians sat still and suffered the most grievous torments, insults, and death, but from a principle of religion which taught to them 
the interest of faith does not exempt men from the duty which they owe to the civil authority or of government, and they rather choose to be killed than to sin against God, as Tertullian often takes notice. Writing at this very time, he tells the pagans that the Mars, Marcomans, and Parthians were not so numerous as the Christians, who knew no other bounds than the limits of the world. We are but of yesterday, says he, and by today we are grown up and overspread your empire, your cities, your islands, your forts, towns, assemblies, and your very camps, wards, companies, palace, senate, forum, all swarm with Christians. Your temples are the only places which you can find without Christians. What war are not we equal to? And supposing as unequal in strength, yet considering our usage, what should we not attempt? We whom you see so ready to meet death in all its forms of cruelty. Were the numerous host of Christians but to retire from the empire, the loss of so many men of all ranks would leave a hideous gap, and the very evacuation would be abundant revenge. You would stand aghast at your desolation and be struck dumb at the general silence and horror of nature as if the whole world was departed. He writes that the Christians not only suffered with patience and joy every persecution and insult, but loved and prayed for their enemies and by their prayers protected the state and often delivered the persecutors from many dangers of soul and body and from the incursions of their invisible enemies, the devils. He says, When we come to the public service of God, we come, as it were, in a formidable body to do violence to him and to storm heaven by prayer, and this violence is most grateful to God. When this holy army of supplicants is met, we all send up our prayers for the life of the emperors, for, the, for their ministers, for magistrates, for the good of the state, and for the peace of the empire. And in another place, to this almighty maker and disposer of all things, it is that we Christians offer up our prayers with eyes lifted up to heaven, and without a, prompt, a prompter we pray with our hearts rather than with our tongues. And in all our prayers are ever mindful of all our emperors and kings wheresoever we live, beseeching God for every one of them that he would bless them with length of days and a quiet reign, a well-established family, a valiant army, a faithful senate, an honest people, and a peaceful world, with whatever else either prince or people can wish for. Thus, while we are stretching forth our hands to God, let your tormenting irons harrow our flesh, let your gibbets exalt us, or your fires consume our bodies, or your swords cut off our heads, or your beasts tread us to the earth. For a Christian upon his knees to God is in a posture of defense against all the evils you can crowd upon him. Consider this, O you impartial judges, and go on with your justice. Rack out the soul of a Christian, which is pouring out herself to God for the life of the emperor. He says indeed that there are some Christians who do not live up to their profession, but then they have no, not to the reputation of Christians among those who are truly such. And no Christian had then ever been guilty of rebellion, though even philosophers among the heathens were often stained with that and other crimes. Hippias was killed while he was engaged in arms against his country, whereas no Christian had ever recourse to arms or violence, even for the deliverance of his brethren, though under the most provoking and barbarous usage. Sancte Irene, ora pro nobis, in nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. No.